I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, we'll discuss the G20 trade ministerial meetings. We'll discuss the Biden administration's biomanufacturing announcement, and we'll talk CFIUS, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, welcome back. We had some feedback from our last episode from some pretty senior people, and we wanted to address that. So, Bill, take it away. Well, last week we discussed Mexican vegetables and the efforts by most of the Florida delegation to encourage the administration to begin a Section 301 investigation of vegetables, which I think it's fair to say we thought was more of a political exercise than a substantive one. But in the process of discussing that, we left the impression that this was a Republican-led effort primarily by Senator Rubio and that it was primarily politically inspired. We've been reminded correctly that most of the Florida delegation, including congressmen uh, from both parties, as well as both senators, have signed on to this initiative. So it really is a a bipartisan initiative, uh, not a Republican initiative. And to the extent that we led listeners to think it was partisan, uh, we regret that. So I think the bottom line is it is not a Republicans v. Mexico issue. It's a Florida v. Mexico issue. And members of Congress of both parties are behind it. This, by the way, is not new. As we did say also last week, this issue goes back with some respect to some vegetables more than 20 years. And I think it has pretty consistently been a bipartisan issue uh, throughout. So if we left everybody with the wrong inference, uh, we regret that. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to add that I do believe vegetables should be a bipartisan issue. (laughs) (laughs) Very hard to argue with 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 that. Although uh, I'm, I love good vegetables, but uh, yes, there's a perhaps another vegetable subject today. But this one is Malaysian palm oil. But we'll we'll wait for that. We'll get to that. Well, good clarification, Bill. Good correction, and we thank our listeners. We have some of the best listeners in Washington who really hone in on what we say, and we learn from our listeners as well. So thank you to our listeners out there. Let's talk about. Ambassador Catherine Tai, who is in Indonesia this week for the G20 Trade Summit. What should we expect from that, guys? At this point, it's a part of the calendar for cabinet officials. And the G20 had some early success in the days of the financial crisis, 2008-2009, that was really a global problem. And the G20 finance ministers conducted some fairly effective coordination along with the central banks for that particular financial crisis. Since then, the meetings have continued on, and often it's hard to know what exactly to expect beyond polite information sharing. And uh, in this case, I think Ambassador Tai wants to promote American engagement in Asia. I think that's great in and of itself, and certainly Asian economies, many of whom are G20 members, welcome the U.S. involvement in the region. Almost all of them are trying to hedge in one way or another between the United States and China. China is probably their largest supplier and customer, largest trading partner, but the United States remains important in the region. And so I think it's a help from that standpoint. The real question is what gets beyond polite information sharing? And we haven't done that yet. Perhaps Bill's got some ideas. Well, I wouldn't expect 
lots out of the G20. The G20 includes China and Russia in addition to us. So I would expect any collective statement by all of them to be fairly anodyne and not tackle some of the issues like economic coercion that the G7 tackled. Bill, let me ask you this before you go any further. Is Russia actually in attendance at this G20? Putin has said he intends to go. And we'll see whether he actually shows up because this week was a meeting of ministers. And I don't know if, if the Russians, I assume the Russians sent somebody. I don't know if they sent a minister. The real test will be at the actual meeting, which I re- believe is either late October, early November. And the Indonesians, who are the hosts, I think have indicated that both Putin and Xi Jinping have accepted the invitation. Interestingly, the Indonesians have also invited Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. So it's going to create a lot of interesting maneuvering if they all, all three of them show up and if Biden shows up, which I don't think has been determined yet. You know, it'll be an interesting dance to see who meets with whom and who walks out of the room when and who avoids whom. But that's all in the future. We can have fun commenting on that later on. Yeah, absolutely. The two things that leapt out for me were the the good news was that one of the topics that they're taking up is WTO reform, including WTO dispute settlement reform. And the other good news is that Ambassador Tai was chairing a discussion specifically on that. This is good because it's a subject that the United States has not exactly jumped on, certainly not in the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has also not been quick to do anything about it. They said they support reform, but they continue to block appointments to the appellate body. So the fact that they started to have a discussion about what to do is good a year overdue, but still good. Whether it goes anywhere, too soon to say, and whether the G20 is the right place, also too soon to say, but at least it means that the United States is getting on board now with the movement to do something about it. The WTO ministerial in June said that they would attempt to come to a resolution about it by 2024. So the clock has started to tick and you know we'll see what happens, but it's a good sign. Uh, The other thing that was a strange sign was that last Sunday, she defended the China tariffs and, and said that their intent was not to be punitive, that it was not to punish China, which I thought was a very odd statement. First of all, she didn't do it. I mean, she didn't impose the tariffs. Trump imposed the tariffs. So really, the only person who can talk about what the intent was, was Donald Trump. This administration doesn't know what he intended. I would say that if you look at what he said at the time and what he did, the intent certainly was to punish China. I mean, that was the whole point. So why she has chosen to say that that was not the intent, I don't know. But I think it was a circuitous way of saying, we're not going to change anything right away. And that conforms to the gossip, which is that although this is literally on the president's desk, the interagency process is finished, it appears he's not going to make a decision until after the midterm elections. So nothing anytime soon. And why she's defending them as non-punitive, though, eludes me. There's no gossip like trade gossip. <laughs> That's you got to sure. admit that. That is for sure. One way <laughs> to defend them is to, to go with the text of 301 itself, which is th- these were imposed to correct unfair practices. And we want China to correct the practices that our investigation showed are unfair to U.S. importers and exporters. So we're, we're awaiting China to correct those unfair practices. And then you take it out of this notion of punishing and rewarding, which... Uh, that's the right way to do it. I agree with you. The problem with that structurally is that 301 was designed to work in a different order. It was designed to force a negotiation. And then only if the negotiation fails, do you act. And Trump reversed that. I mean, his philosophy is, is with everything he does is you know, hit them in the face first, and then we negotiate. And that's what he did. And the statute is intended to do the reverse. All right. Well, guys, 
Let's move on for a second to the EU, which has recently announced its intention to strike a trade agreement within two years. Is this something the United States should consider? It was this agreement with Indonesia, I recall. Yes. The Indonesians are wonderful people, but they are notoriously slow to make up their minds. I can't imagine that any negotiation with them would end in two years, uh, no matter how meritorious. Well, how would the EU reconcile its environmental concerns with an EU-Indonesian trade pact, for instance? Well, that's a good point. It won't be easy, largely because of palm oil, which has been widely criticized in the environmental and sustainability community as being bad for the environment because they they do a lot of deforestation to build palm oil plantations. And Indonesia is one of the main producers, uh, along with Malaysia. Those countries claim that, as I recall, 75% of their palm oil production is sustainable. I'm not sure what that means. And I think I would want to talk to somebody in the sustainability community to get their take on it before I came to a conclusion. But it's certainly be an issue with the UK if you're going to try to produce an agreement that says anything about climate or anything about sustainability. It seems to me that, that it's going to encounter resistance from uh, the Indonesians. I don't know. Scott, what do you think? Well, look, first of all, Indonesia is a big, important country. And integrating it into the trading system is, I think, always a good thing. I agree with Bill as the difficulty of doing that on any, on any prompt timing for the EU or, or, or any group. I mean, the United States was on again, off again with uh, free trade with Malaysia. These things are tough to manage within the timelines of Western republics and democracies versus the governments there. And, and that's not a criticism of either way. It's just, it does take time. I do find the palm oil biodiesel conundrum uh, amusing because for me, it, shows, it goes to show how fashionable or unfashionable certain parts of the green movement can be. I would just point out that back in 2007, first of all, biodiesel was a good thing in Europe. Uh, in 2007, just it's sort of like padded shoulder pads and 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 pleated pants. Uh, <laughs> Europe was actually subsidizing the purchase of diesel engine vehicles. They had lower taxes on diesel fuel than they did on on gasoline, and they thought biodiesel was wonderful because all the carbon capture happened via photosynthesis. And so they had an argument that that uh, biodiesel was somehow good for the environment versus all other forms of fuel. And of course, the, the fashion has changed. Now, I'm old enough when it comes to environmental fashion to have walked around graduate school with a copy of, of Amory Lovin's book, <laughs> Soft Energy Paths, just to be cool, you know, just to make sure people knew I was reading it. Yeah. So the, these things change. But, but this is one where, you know, of course, it's a long history of tension on that very issue of the palm oil can be harvested in, in ways the way timber is harvested in the United States. I mean, it's, it's basically a forestry operation, much of which is sustainable. And of course, no vegetable oil in Europe has, has restrictions on it in terms of how it's processed or whether it's turned into biodiesel. But the key is versus 15 years ago, diesel's now bad. Okay. And you, you, you just got, you do need a scorecard to keep up with the, uh, with the fashion. Though. The other thing to keep in mind, if I can do one more thing, here's part of this is the, the UK is on a crusade to prove its relevance. You know, having dropped out of the EU, they're trying very hard to convince the rest of the world that they're still important. And part of that is negotiating as many trade agreements as they can. Uh, the first ones, which were easy, were simply negotiations with countries that the EU had agreements with, and they simply negotiated replacements that were pretty much the same as what they had when they were in the EU. But they are now moving on. You know, they proposed one with the, with the U.S., 
And the Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, told reporters earlier this week on her way to New York that it looked like that wasn't going to happen anytime soon because the Biden administration wasn't doing any deals. I mean, she got that right. But they're also trying to join CPTPP in the Pacific, and they're doing it, trying to do this deal with Indonesia. They're trying to do a lot of deals because they want to convince the world that, uh, you know, the empire has not entirely disappeared and the sun is not setting on it still. Well, for the record, I do not believe that shoulder padded suit jackets will ever come back. But I do think there's a chance for pleated pants somewhere down the line. Yes, let's hope so. <laughs> People with certain waistlines of a certain size uh, like pleated pants because the, <laughs> because the alternative looks uh, very strange if you look at them st- straight on. And I speak from experience in that regard. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> the last three times I bought a suit, which was a long time ago, uh, the salesman said, you need pleated pants. So oh I don't my. think they're going away. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting to know. I also wondered if Liz Truss knows that the Baltimore Ravens, one of their catchphrases is big trust, as in big trust. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, I just, you know, there's something that has been popping into my mind every time oh. I hear her name. So, Well, maybe, maybe somebody from the embassy is listening and we'll have some more listener feedback. I Good. Have, that's what we need. I have this to say, is a, I have a small important. claim to pl- fame here. I had lunch with her. Did you really? I had lunch with her. Just, there were just three of us, she and a, a minder from the embassy uh, and me. And it was back when she was a newly appointed trade minister. You may recall mm-hmm. that was her first big assignment, uh, I think in 2018, probably. And uh, she was here on her first visit here as minister. And the embassy uh, set her up to have lunch with me to talk about trade and trade policy. Wow. So I knew her when nobody ever heard of her. Well, maybe she can return the favor by coming on the trade guys. Well, you know, that's a good idea if she remembers. We'll, ha- we'll have to reach out to the embassy and see if we can make that. I mean, at the very least, we can, you know, well, I mean, even better, we can have her come speak at CSIS about trade, which would be fantastic. Yes. I think she wouldn't have anything good to say about the administration right now, but she probably would have a lot of interesting things to say about what the UK's trade policy is. So that's right, which we absolutely need to know about. All right. So. Let's talk about the Biden administration announcing a new biomanufacturing program. They announced this last week, new biomanufacturing program. What actually is it? It's a reshoring effort. And it's a reflection of what we've said, actually what Scott and I have said on and off for two years. Uh, you know, following the lessons I learned in the, in the punditry business, when you're right, you have to keep reminding people that you were right. And when you're wrong, you just move on to the next thing and hope they forget. This is a case where we were right. Because one of the things we said about COVID was that it, it taught us that autarky is doesn't work very well and that we run out of things. And that one of the things we ran out of was uh, drugs and PPE during COVID. And the lesson was that we were not independent in, the, in all of those items and that from a health policy perspective, that made a difference. And so... You'll recall the president, first couple of weeks in office, he issued an executive order to study four critical sectors and then broader studies of bigger sectors. The four critical sectors were what? Chips, batteries, critical minerals, and pharmaceuticals and PPE. And so this directive is a consequence of those studies, which is to try to create or recreate, you know, a manufacturing capability in the United States for active pharmaceutical ingredients. They're putting money into it, one or two billion, as I recall, to promote manufacturing and trying to, you know, restart an industry that 
by and large over the last 20 years has moved offshore. Yeah, we've talked so much on this program, especially during the pandemic, about how the United States is dependent on other countries, namely China, for medical ingredients, for drugs, and for PPE. So makes a lot of sense, this new program, doesn't it? Well, look, it's industrial policy. This is uh, two sticks and a carrot for the pharmaceutical industry, as I, if I read, read it right. Stick one was the Biden administration's refusal to defend the WTO TRIPS agreement when it came to compulsory licensing for vaccines. Stick two was the uh, HHS price fixing or price negotiations for Medicare drugs that was in the recent the Inflation Reduction Act. And then this is the one there's where there's some carrots involved. But it looks like industrial policy. It kind of quacks like industrial policy. As a citizen who is, has some passing familiarity with the Constitution, I did not recall an, an act, of, act of Congress to authorize this. So I'm wondering where they're getting the money. But I guess that's a that's a sideline. I think point. the underlying statutory authority is the Defense Production Act. Ah, I see. So will the plan strengthen the U.S. medical supply chains? Maybe, probably not. Government spending and innovation has a lot of failures and one path to success. The path to success is when the government takes an existing known technology and puts in funds to scale it up. The three best examples of that are the Manhattan Project, the space program, and the human genome. But in each of those cases, the invention happened first and the government's funds were specifically used to scale it up. That's not the case here. And so it really matters how the money's spent as where the money comes from. There's a, a long history of, of disappointment and failure in this area by having government money at the front end before the invention. So we'll see. Well, we sort of have to get this one right, don't we? Well, yes, it's important. And I hope everybody was paying attention to what Scott said, because it was a really insightful comment that had not, had not previously occurred to me that way. The only thing I would say about it is that there is, unfortunately, these days, a tendency to politicize these decisions. The Solyndra case, which was a solar panel case that the Obama administration spent a lot of money on and then went bankrupt, was a case in point because a lot of Republicans to come in and say, this is all nonsense. You know, you're just wasting the taxpayers' money. The reality, though, is if you're going to play the game of industrial policy, you're going to have failures as well as successes. One of the great strengths of America and anybody in Silicon Valley will tell you that, is that we view, we view failure not as a humiliation, but as a learning experience that allows you to move on to other things, that you fix your mistakes, you don't repeat them, and you succeed the next time, or maybe the third time or the fifth time, but you keep doing it, whereas other countries would be embarrassed and would, would give up. So Yeah, failure is a humiliation. It's, yeah. it's one of our strengths. We don't, we don't get embarrassed. <laughs> No, we're pretty shameless. One, which we like, we can go on about that too. Well, we also tolerate crackpots, which is the, the the really important point under this is, and it turns out that most really original inventors, I would take take Albert Einstein being the classic example, are believed to be crackpots. I mean, this guy was a misfit in the Swiss Patent Office. Watson and Crick, who came up with the, the underlying technology for the human genome were rejected by other faculty members at Oxbridge because they were thought to be kooks, okay? It just turned out a lot of times the kooks are right, and the fact that we allow our kooks to try again until they become distinguished scientists is a unique feature of America that's very hard to simulate with government grants. Keep in mind that the people you're talking about were, none of them were Americans, right? at least initially. They became such, uh, or, or did a lot of their, their work here, but 
that's a that's a good analogy and a good principle as far as science is concerned. When it's applied to politics, I don't think that we benefit from crackpots. It, it, well, it makes it harder, that's for sure. <laughs> My point was simply uh, failure is part of the game. And if you're going to play the game, then you're going to fail from time to time. And you can't let yourself be plowed under by all the people that will point their fingers and say, see, that whole thing was a mistake. Bill's, Bill's making the point that makes uh, that, that Rocky is an exclusively American movie idea. <laughs> okay, because right. what, what was Rocky? Well, he was a loser that kept trying. Yeah. And right. a pencil, Love, Pennsylvania right? lovable loser. loser. All for it. Lovable loser. So, so wait, let's just back to the biomanufacturing program. Are any countries going to be upset with this? Do they stand to lose from this proposal? Yes. China has reacted negatively i mean they're not frothing at the mouth and pounding the table but they were uh, they were critical of it uh, ironically because it's exactly the same thing that they do they objected to this uh, denial of market principles you know and this interference in the market which is really amusing because if there's anybody that's interfered with the market and doesn't respect market principles it's the chinese but they can say what they want there are other major pharmaceutical producers switzerland uh, germany the uk i don't think they've said much yet but Wait and see. Now, on the other hand, it's actually not a lot of money. This is $2.8 billion over five years, which sounds like a lot. And it is a lot if you're developing apps or video games or things like that. It's not a lot when you're dealing with, with atoms. And uh, innovation in that space, whether it's approving a new molecular entity as a pharmaceutical, whatever it might be, this amounts to kind of a couple of white chips. Uh, and is going to have to be supplemented by venture capital and industry programs for R&D and lots of other areas if it's going to succeed. All right, guys. Let's quickly, here at the end of the podcast, talk about CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, of course. The White House recently signed an executive order designating changes to CFIUS. What are those changes? Well, they didn't change the process. They didn't change the jurisdiction. Uh, what they tried to do was uh, direct CFIUS to pay special attention to particular areas. And that's important because it was a, a clue as to what the administration considers important. And this is going to show up, I would predict, later on if and when the administration comes up with an outbound investment proposal. Uh, which we've discussed before, and which Jake Sullivan last week indicated they were going to do, I suspect it will be the same group of, of sectors. And what they identified in the CFIUS directive is microelectronics, artificial intelligence, biotechnology and biomanufacturing, quantum computing, advanced clean energy, climate adaptation technologies, critical materials, and elements of the agriculture industrial base. So what that means, I think, is that CFIUS is being told, pay special attention there, because those are what we regard as sensitive, critical industries. Look, I think this is probably good for investors in terms of understanding what the administration's priorities are. CFIUS is governed by a relatively recent statute. FIRMA, which is the underlying authority, was passed by Congress in 2018 with broad bipartisan majorities. It's a, it's a well-established in terms of its political stacking as the underlying statute. It's relatively recently modernized. But the CFIUS committee operates in a way where many of its conversations are informal. The, the formal reviews take place often only after a lot of informal consultation with the committee has gone on. And investors want to have some 
pretty high degree of confidence that they know they're going to be approved if they get to the formal stage. So this kind of clarity in terms of what the priorities of the administration would be, I think will be helpful to firms who are interested in investing in the United States. So I I look at it as a net positive. So let's talk about National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's speech. It detailed the U.S. evolving approach to export controls. What exactly did he say and why is it such a significant speech? Exactly what we've been saying. So I feel vindicated, which is basically that their policy is changing, that for the last 25 years, since when I had the relevant job, our policy has been to keep the adversaries a generation or two behind us technologically. That was, uh, I think, a very successful policy. It allowed us to continue to sell them stuff, just old stuff, make a lot of money, which we reinvested in development of new stuff, which enabled our high-tech industries, particularly in the information communication technology sector, ICT, to stay ahead. It was a successful policy. What Jake said is essentially that that's over now and we're moving on to a policy that is going to actively try to degrade our adversaries' capabilities. That doesn't mean they're abandoning the keep them behind strategy, but in addition, they are going to try to degrade military capabilities. What that means in practice, as far as export controls is is concerned, I think, is that they're going to go back and try to recontrol some things that they had previously released on the grounds that they're important to preventing the Chinese from obtaining new military capabilities and or even maintaining the ones they've got. And you can see this has already become uh, manifest. They have uh, told the companies that make the equipment that you use to make chips, the lithography equipment, LAM research and several others, Whereas in previously they had to get a license for machinery that made ships of less than 10 nanometers. Now they have to get licenses for machinery that makes chips less than 14 nanometers. I mean, since a nanometer is a tiny fraction of the width of the human hair, I think the difference between 14 and 10 is not that big, but technologically it's significant. And it's a step backward. It is controlling stuff that we had previously released. They've also told uh, NVIDIA and AMD, who are developing next generation of certain AI chips, that uh, you're, they're going to need licenses for the, the next generation, which is a step, in a way, a step backwards. So they're tightening up and they're also doing it multilaterally. They've talked, they're talking to ASML, which is the Dutch lithography company that is really the world's leader in the very high end of this stuff, trying to make sure that the Netherlands pursues the same control strategy that we're pursuing. And they're having conversations not only with the Netherlands, but with the Koreans, the Japanese, who also make the equipment, and Taiwan, which buys the equipment, which has become uh, gotten the name the Fab Five, which is a great pun because Fab is fabrication and Fab Five, well, never mind. Everybody gets the pun. <laughs> they're trying to get a sort of a mini regime here where everybody will pursue it the same way. I don't know if that will work, We'll see, but it is clearly a tightening of controls and a new approach. The other element of it, and they have not dropped this other shoe yet, but I think they will at some point, is that China's civil military fusion doctrine, which is essentially telling Chinese manufacturers, you all can be part of our military establishment. We could tap any of you for products and technology that you have. What that means in the export control world is there are no longer reliable end users in China, you know, and for 25 years, we have pursued what we call an end user based 
control policy. So when I was doing this for high performance computers, we said you can ship them to the National Railroad in China because they use it for scheduling purposes. You can ship it to the Chinese Weather Service. You can't ship it to the PLA. Now we're in a world where the Weather Service or the Railway Association, Railway, National Railway, might be tapped by the government to support the military in some way. So is this going to change who we decide to issue licenses to? So far, all the administration has done on that is add companies to the entities list. And if you're on the entities list, it means you have to get a license for anything. Sell Huawei a coffee cup, you need a license, okay? So that's the answer. We are sort of banning more companies, if you will, uh, or at least requiring a license. But this may change the nature of the way we award licenses going forward. We'll see. Yeah, look, American companies in this technology space are going to watch this very carefully because many Chinese end users are, they would consider good customers or have for a number of years. But just to make two points in closing, first, Bill mentioned the Fab Five, and Andrew and I are both Big Ten sports fans, so we know who the real Fab Five was, (laughs) okay? And second, that uh, when a subject of export controls comes up, Trade Guy Bill is actually the Honorable William Reinch, Undersecretary of Commerce for this particular area of expertise of the Bureau of Information and Security for eight years. And so you tend not to gild a lily when uh, Bill talks on these issues. He's the guy. He's him. That's what they say in football now. I am him. He's him. Yes. Which is grammatically incorrect. They should be saying, I am he. Yeah, well, you know, but it's football, so they can say whatever they want. But it is football, which says something as well, but I won't take that any further. All right, guys, this has been great. Uh, We will see you next week on Trade Guys. Really appreciate all the insights and, of course, the correction at the beginning. Thanks a lot. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.